Hey everybody, this is Brent Watkinson with Everyday Artist. My guest today is the venerable Jeffrey Allen Love. His website is jeffreyallenlove.com with Allen being spelled with one L, A-L-A-N. And as always, you will find a link to his website on my website, brentwatkinson.com, as well as a few images of his work. And of course, his website is rich with images and information. Wherever you are listening to this podcast, please be sure and click that subscribe button because it is free to subscribe to Everyday Artist. Jeff is an award-winning artist and writer, and you will hear how he became a writer during the course of this interview. He is the author of Notes from the Shadowed City and the author of The Thousand Demon Tree. He has won the World Fantasy Award, the British Fantasy Award, a gold medal from the Society of Illustrators, a Silver Spectrum Fantastic Art Award, and two Academy of British Cover Design Awards. He has been nominated also for the Kate Greenaway Medal and the British Science Fiction Award, as well as the Chelsea Award. So Jeff has certainly been leaving his mark in the publishing industry. He has many clients, which include DC Comics, Tor Books, The New York Times, The New Yorker Magazine, Time Magazine, Washington Post, the list goes on and on. And he is currently living in Northern California. Jeff came to the illustration industry by a meandering path, and he will disclose those details during our contemplative discourse today. Jeffrey Allen Love. Let's get into it. Jeff, explain to us a little bit about how you got into the illustration industry because you came from a rather circuitous route and you didn't really start out to make pictures. So I will let you tell that part of the story, please. Growing up, I, I wanted to, the, my introduction to, to art was through books. And so it was uh, words and pictures. And, and I always wanted to do both. And so I went to school for, for English, for creative writing, because my father, who was in the military, didn't, he wasn't sure about art school. He thought that a liberal arts degree would, would probably be the, a better choice. And I don't know that I agreed with him at the time, but I do agree with him now. I think that that has helped me have a different point of view when I make pictures and when I work on my projects, the fact that I have a training and sort of reading a text and dissecting it and understanding it that perhaps I wouldn't have gotten if I had gone to an art school, but I wanted, I wanted to be a comic book artist. And when I got out of liberal arts school, I was going to go to the Joe Kubert school of comic book art because I loved comic books and I'd seen in the back of comic books that, that which is still going, going strong by the way, right now, isn't it? It is. It's a fantastic school and I visited it and it was all my dreams come true of, you know, getting to work on comic books and learning all, all the, the secrets and the ins and outs of it. Um, because I was a very bad, I was a bad artist. I think I had a, 
a somewhat of a talent and a, a drive for it, but I was never a very good artist. And so everything seemed very mysterious to me about how to actually make art. So you're um, talking when you were 17, 18 years old. Right. I, in high school, I took, I wanted to be an artist. And I was very excited about art, but I, when I took uh, high school art one, whatever that class would be, my, uh, my art teacher didn't recommend me to take the next level class. He thought that I wasn't good enough. I uh, sometimes send him little messages about <laughs> my, my recent accomplishments to, good for to, let you. Him, to let him know that perhaps he shouldn't break a, a young student's heart that way with, with a, such a young age. But I, my, I was going to go to the Joe Kubert School of Art, comic book art, and my band was offered a record deal. And so I ended up being in a band for about six or seven years touring and, and making records and doing so, things like that. So wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's not gloss over that. You were already in a band and you were playing what instrument or instruments? I was a jack of all trades when it came to, to instruments, but I wasn't very good at any of them. I was workable with uh, drums, guitar, violin, uh, singing, uh, just a little bit of everything. And we had a sort of democratic band where everybody sort of switched off and, and took over on various things. I, and I did that for, like I said, I think six or seven years. And it was great while I did it. And I'm very happy that I had that experience in my 20s. But at the end of the day, I, was, I didn't like being 20% of the decision-making process. And I don't think that my heart was in it because I was never driven to become better. Uh, and I knew so that this I was the, your early 20s, mid-20s? Yes. And I... I I think I knew that that it wasn't for me even while I was doing it, but it was a lot of fun to be with my friends and, and I didn't have to grow up. I got to keep being a, a child for another, you know, five, six, seven years and, and it was fun. And so I, you know, I enjoyed that process, but I think at some point I knew that it wasn't, I, I was. Were you traveling also? Yeah, we, we played, you know, like South by Southwest and, and toured some and, um, it's very difficult to be, to, to be in a band. And, um, if you, if you have no money, you know, if I had been independently wealthy, it would have been easy to be in a band, but when you're trying to make a, like make a living and pay your rent and, but you're like finding a job that lets you leave for, you know, a couple of weeks at a time or take a day off or whatever. It's, it was a logistical nightmare and it's, it's a nightmare that I know people who have traversed it and come out on top and, are very well known now. Um, and they had the drive that I didn't have. I could, there was something that they had that I, that I didn't have when it came to music. You were having fun, not growing up, uh, barely making ends meet with this band. And then you, what, what, uh, what happened so that you decided to make a different decision and have different experiences? I still kept making art but it was still pretty amateurish. I would make uh, band t-shirts and posters and things like that. But I decided to get serious about it. And my, my girlfriend at the time was going to be going to uh, school in Virginia. And I looked at art schools in Virginia and saw that George Pratt taught at uh, VCU at the time. And so I just decided this is an opportunity for me to, to make a break from playing music and to, to move down there with my girlfriend and to, to go to art school and uh, and learn from George Pratt, who was, I thought, one of the, the great artists of our time. You know, his name comes up a lot in this podcast. He's I'm, fantastic. I've, I've learned a ton from him. <laughs> I'm smiling when I say that because, as you know, I've known him 
20 years. So yes, and I'm always glad uh, to get the reference to George. Well, I feel very privileged to, to eventually gotten to learn from him. I didn't get to learn from him right away when I, I showed up to, to class the first day and I went to the, the illustration department and said, I'm here to, th- I'm a 30 year old freshman and I'm here to, to learn from George Pratt. And they said, oh, George is no longer teaching here. He left for Ringling this summer. You know, I was heartbroken, but it ended up being a very, a good experience because then I started investigating the other professors and found that Sterling Hundley was a professor there. And so then that was my introduction to Sterling's work and my eventual, uh, beginning of my relationship with Sterling. And Robert McGank was there. He was the illustration department head for many years, but not at the time when you began, but I think after that, is that correct? Right. I forget the the name of the gentleman that was the the head of the department. Uh, Robert took over from him and that was much better. Robert McGank is one of these amazing people that, uh, and I've probably told this story before, he was such a good artist that when he switched over to doing digital work, none of his clients knew it until it came up in conversation. So that, that's my plug for being a good artist is if you're making good artwork, it doesn't matter how you make it. So that's how amazing that guy is in my eyes. I agree. So now you're at VCU and you missed George Pratt by a little tiny bit, but you uh, became... Uh, involved with Sterling and Robert McGank and started your learning curve again all over. So what was the difference between the teachers that you had previously and then being exposed to the faculty where Sterling was teaching at VCU? I was, I knew that I wasn't getting what I wanted and I had to push myself out beyond the classes and to go out and find it. And so through that, I you know, I started seeing all these people that had these wonderful sketchbooks and, and learned that they had all gone to this program called the Illustration Academy. And through that, I saw that Sterling was an instructor at the Illustration Academy. And, and so I uh, wanted to talk to Sterling. And, and basically, I saw that, and I was driving an hour to class every day. Um, and I, I saw that Sterling had office hours. I showed, and so I showed up for his office hour, and there was no one there to talk to him. And he was held captive, you know, for two hours or three hours for his office hours to be open to students of the school and nobody would show up. So I just decided that my real school was going to be showing up twice a week for Sterling's office hours and just sitting down and, you know, either having a, a book or a piece that I was working on and saying this with my work, this isn't good enough. What am I doing wrong? Or the piece of art that I did like that someone else had done, I would look at it and say, what are they doing that I'm not doing? What should I be thinking about? because he was held captive by the school saying you have to be in your office for these hours. I was able to sort of corner him and make force him to educate me. That really was the beginning of my art education was uh, cornering Sterling and making him teach me. You asked a lot of good questions. Did just now you, you were explaining to us, you were clarifying what you were talking to Sterling about. Did you have that same vocabulary back then? thinking in terms of what am I not doing that they're doing? What am I doing wrong? What do I need to be thinking? Those are very sophisticated learning questions. I think I did have that vocabulary at the time. I didn't have the art vocabulary, so I couldn't say why are the values working in this piece or what is the, uh, what's the saturation or any of the sort of art vocabulary. But I, I think again, what helped me was that I was 30 years old and I had already had a 
a college degree. And so I had some education and, and I was older. I had somewhat matured slightly beyond being a child at that point. And I, I knew I was able to, to realize that I had to leave my ego aside and to, and to look at my work with open eyes and see all the deficiencies of it. And instead of feeling defensive about it or trying to, to argue to other people that they just weren't seeing what was hidden within my work or the potential of my work, I had to actually say it's not there and I have no idea how to get it to where I want it to be. And, and to do that, I have to be willing to approach someone that can do it and teaches it and, and just offer myself up to them saying, you know, in essence, I'm an empty vessel. Please fill me up. I need to, I, I'm hungry to know. I need to know the knowledge everywhere that I've been so far in schooling has just said, and this is part of the problem I had with freshman year is that it's, you know, how do I make a painting? And they just say, Oh, well, you just keep painting and you'll figure it out. Just do a bunch of paintings. It's like, well, you know, looking back on it now, it's like, well, there's all these other things, you know, value edges, you know, accurate drawing, all these things that they c- could have taught me, but for whatever reason, their education, their syllabus or, or their direction from above or, or just their failings as an artist themselves, they, they weren't able to impart that knowledge to me. And so it, it was wonderful to find someone in Sterling who, who had the vocabulary and had the learning and, and was able to present it to me. It took me six, seven, eight years after hearing it to actually be able to put it into use because otherwise, you know, we could just Google, I could Google how to build a car and just put it together and look, I built a car, but you know, you actually have to spend or Google how to paint a picture, but you actually have to spend time making it your own knowledge. You're, you know, there's information, but then you have to spend time chewing on it until it becomes something you can actually use. And, and for me, I was very much a late bloomer. It took me years and years of banging my head against a wall to, to make it knowledge and not just information that I had. Well, the shortcut to what you said, and there's nothing wrong with what you said, I'm, I will just encapsulate it by saying, the Zen Buddhists say, you have no knowledge but your own. In other words, if I said, Jeff, here's my car keys. I know that you need to go to the store. So to get the door open, you have to put the key in and jiggle it two times to the left and one time to the right. I can tell you that, but it doesn't really mean anything until you go out and you work on it and you fail a couple of times and then finally you get the door open and you get it. Now that's a ridiculous example, but that's what you were just telling us. You had all this great information that was being imparted to you at the right time in the right place and you were hungry for it but it took you a while to have all of that gel in your mind into something that you could actually use i think in some ways it's the point where you stop thinking about it it's your i think of the different things that you in making art uh, each thing was like a ball or a chainsaw that i was being asked to juggle and I could juggle one chainsaw, maybe, you know, and then they add in another. And then, you know, here's, uh, here's value, here's color, here's uh, composition, here's all these different things. And, and if you try to do everything and you're thinking about it, it all just, you know, you chop your arms off. But if, <laughs> if you... Another uh, great analogy. <laughs> if at a, at a certain point, and it's hard to, I don't even remember when it was. But it's just at a certain point, if you stop thinking about it and just start doing and you start painting or drawing or if you're able to, to remove the critic in your brain that's telling you all the things you're doing wrong. And if you just do things uh, and make a lot of stuff, at some point, 
you realize you're juggling all these things. You're juggling the chainsaws and you don't, it's almost like you don't know when you started to be able to do it. I think of it often as a, you know, as if I was pushing the the boulder up the mountain. And at some point I realized that I, the boulder was gone and it was rolling downhill and I hadn't even noticed. It's interesting how that, how, how that works. Well, I had an instructor one time that said, Hey Brent, all your edges are the same. You need a concert of edges. And I thought, I know exactly what he's talking about now. I need sharp edges. I need medium sharp edges. I need soft edges. I need completely lost edges. I get it now. And that one statement meant the world to me. And it was, it was amazing that uh, somebody can say something. And, and a lot of artwork is, of course, the physical act of doing it. But there is so much verbal information that can be these wonderful bridges or almost shortcuts into doing things better. And it sounds like that's what you were receiving when you were uh, holding, <laughs> to, use your, <laughs> to use your words, you were holding Sterling hostage in his own office. Right. That was, I, I think that was where my real art education started, was, was with Sterling and his office. And you weren't painting or drawing in there necessarily. You were just getting knowledge. Is that correct? Right. I, it's funny to think of now with the, the way that I work now, but at the time, doing a painting in a week seemed like a, a monumental task. And so to, you know, if I was seeing him twice a week, maybe I'd have one, you know, half done piece to show him. But often it was just, you know, if there was an artist that I was really responding to or, or something, I wanted to make sure that I had something to, to show him that I could, I didn't want to just show up with nothing and say, you do all the work. I wanted to make sure that he knew that I was striving and that I was searching and and that I was coming to him and I deserved to be taught, that I had earned the right to, 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 for him to spend all his time with me. On that same aspect, and people have probably heard this story before, but I'm a fan of the musical group Rush, and the drummer's name is Neil Pert, and anybody that knows me has heard this story before. But during a break in uh, the band's normal routine, Neil Pert, who has been for years described as perhaps the world's best drummer or the world's most technical drummer, whatever, obviously very accomplished, he decided he needed to get better, and he hired Freddie Gruber, which is uh, a legendary drummer, to give him lessons. And he took, quote, unquote, lessons from Freddie Gruber in Freddie's studio for a year. And he went back with the band and uh, he said, man, I, I feel kind of rusty. I hope I'm doing okay. And his two bandmates said, uh, are you kidding? I'm not sure if this is possible, but I think you may be better. And right. the, the moral of that story is Freddie Gruber and Neil Peart never played drums together in that studio. They talked about it. They talked about getting set up for your next movement. Look at this movement when you're going this direction. Do you end something on an up or a down, et cetera, et cetera. So those guys never played music together, and you and Sterling never did art together. You talked about conceptually what you needed to do in your mind 
to get your mind in the right place and move forward. When I was starting to go to art school, I was very much a pessimist. And I realized that I would have a miserable life if I was a pessimist and, a, and perhaps a shorter life. And so I thought about what I could do. And at the time I was working actually as a personal trainer at a gym and a, and a martial arts instructor, as a martial arts instructor, uh, because those jobs allowed me to, to tour and to, to play shows. I was able to make my own schedule. And so I was very much into uh, sports psychology and, but also into to, to Buddhism because I think that art is, it's a craft and it's a, uh, it's a commercial work, but it's also a spiritual work. If you only focus on one thing, something else gets out of whack. And so I found that by, by pursuing, there were two books. One was called Turning Your Mind Into an Ally, and one was called In Pursuit of Excellence, which was written by a Canadian Olympic coach. And I, I found that by balancing these two sort of competing ideals of searching for spiritual peace and and letting go of the world's concerns balanced with the pursuit of excellence, wealth, and acclaim by pursuing something you want to do very well. So part of that reason that I'm talking about that part of that is the sports psychology. I would spend at night, I would rehearse drawing. I would rehearse painting. I would rehearse making a piece of art or thinking about it in my head as if I was a athlete thinking about free throws. So I would shoot a hundred free throws in my head at night. I would cybernetics. Isn't that, would, isn't that I, the word cybernetics? I, is it? I don't know. It might be. It's, I would just do, I would rehearse. I would mentally rehearse at night, you know, doing drawings in my head. And I, I think that that, that did help me to, to speed up the learn, speed up the, the learning curve that I needed there. Oh, I think that's a huge idea. And, uh, maybe I'm using the wrong word, but the, um, the sports psychologists say, yeah, sit in a chair, you know, close your eyes, lay in bed at night and go to the free throw line and shoot those free throws over and over and over and over again. And there are results. There are studies that will show that cybernetics does work. And it's not just in the art field, or excuse me, it's not just in the sports field. It's in any field that you want to make it. I'm sure a uh, saxophone player could sit there and run scales in his mind with his fingers over and over and over again and get better results. Right. I think that there, the way to think of it is that there's no money in, in researching how to make a better artist, unfortunately, but there's plenty of money in researching how to make a better athlete but the, the principles apply. They're, they're the same to me. Oh, I, I think so. Absolutely. So when you were practicing doing drawings or paintings, were you specifically thinking about trying to maintain a value plan or limit your values to five or three? What kinds of things were you cybernetically thinking about to engage in the next day? I think at the time it was mostly drawing from life. It was drawing from, from the figure or drawing in my sketchbook, drawing the world around me. I don't think that I understood value yet really. So I think that it was more trying to be able to accurately capture something. So if I saw an interesting car or if I saw an interesting uh, building or something like that, I would try to fix it in my head and then I would try to draw, draw it at night in my head later on. So it was, it was sort of a mental memory exercise and a, a way of drawing in my sketchbook. If I didn't have time to sit there and draw something right then, I would mentally draw it at night. You mentioned the magic word of sketchbook. How important was that to your 
learning and your educational process at the time? My sketchbook was very important at the time, and it's it's been important throughout my career. It probably is the most important aspect of my working life is my sketchbook. It has sort of guided my career and told me often where my work should go. Now, so how does that manifest itself? How can that happen? I don't teach anymore, really. But when I did teach, often you would see students who had amazing sketchbooks and their final paintings, their final projects would be miserable. And there was a disconnect between what they would do in a sketchbook, having fun, exploring, playing, being uh, connected to whatever they were connected to then. And then when they tried to transfer it over to the, the a final piece, they lost it. They tightened up or they got afraid or they were hesitant in their mark making, whatever happened, it was, there was some disconnect. And I had the exact same thing to where I could eventually do really interesting and fun and exciting stuff in a sketchbook. But when I went to a final, it just fell apart. And I realized that I should just stop thinking about the final work as a different part of the process. Why should I only have fun? Why should I limit the exploration and the fun and the excitement to a sketchbook and then get all tight and worried and and have some sort of strange definition of what a final piece should be, why should I be locked in on a definition of a final piece of art is a is an oil painting or is this beautifully rendered acrylic thing or what why couldn't it be this why couldn't the piece be what the assignment wants it to be, whether it's throw everything at it in a collage and rip things up and, and have fun and see what happens. The final piece could just be what the assignment is calling for and it could my sketchbook work could be the final. Why do I have to have this divide between them? So I think that that was how the sketchbook tells me where now where my work should go. If I'm doing something fun and exciting and different in my sketchbook, then I want to bring that over to my final work. And often now the work that is seen in the commercial world, often it's done in my sketchbook and I just scan it in and, you know, fix it up and send it off. Now, you just mentioned the idea of playfulness or play in your sketchbook, and everything I've been able to find about creativity, and there's not really a lot that I've been really satisfied reading about creativity. Most of it is too Jungian or existential, and it just kind of goes pretty far out there. But every single thing that I've read mentions the act of play and the ability to accept the fact that play is good. So what do you think about the, the concept of playfulness in your sketchbook or even the final painting? I think it has been very important to me, and, and part of it has been removing expectations of what the final will look like. When I started and I was a struggling illustrator, it was often because I was trying to control what the outcome would be too much. And so I would tighten up and, and beat myself up because this was never going to look like a Vermeer or a Rembrandt, you know, and of course it's not, they had, you know, a year to do a painting and I was given three days. Now, how can I expect myself to, to replicate a, a Vermeer in three days on a deadline? And so I didn't like the artist that I was, when I was too tight and too trying to, to, to think about what the outcome would be too much. Well, tell us, tell us when that was, were you still in school? Was this during your early professional career? When were you talking about that you weren't satisfied with the artist that you were currently being? 
I dropped out of VCU after my freshman year there when I was 30. And after that, I ended up uh, apprenticing with Sterling for, for a year or two. And then I ended up in a shared studio with Edward Kinsella, Leslie Herman, Andrew Wright, Josh George, Sterling, Aaron Riley. And so it would be that period. That was sort of my, my grad school or, or post-graduation era. It was sharing a studio with people who were at different levels of their career at the time. Leslie and I were still very much trying to work our way in. Uh, Ted Edward Gonzalo was uh, very much in the into the the illustration world and winning awards at the time. Andrew Wright as well. Josh George, of course, is an amazing gallery painter. Sterling is, you know, Mister Society of Illustri- Illustrators. So it's uh, it, there was a, a a great range of of people at various points in their career, and it was during that point where I, I was trying. I was. I was trying to get my portfolio together to, to really, I was getting jobs here and there, but to, to really jump in and, and dive in with both feet. And I just couldn't figure out who I was as an artist. I was searching for my voice and, and I was trying to control it too much and think about it too much instead of just work. And so what, and so I'd be working on something and I'd, you know, be trying to paint something and I'd look over at my palette and what was happening on the palette was way more interesting than what was happening on the painting. And so I would start thinking, well, what am I doing on the palette that is different? What sort of moves am I making with a brush or a brayer or a palette knife over here that aren't translating over here because I'm not uptight over here? And so I was able to start thinking, what, how do I achieve that over on the place where it matters? And what I started doing was, and I, it may have been you and George Pratt that I saw this from first of, a, a reverse monotype where you ink up a sheet of paper or a plate and then you flip that it over was George where you draw. So I started inking up paper and flipping it over and, and drawing with my fingernails. So I couldn't see, I was, I, I had an idea of what I was trying to draw, but I didn't, I couldn't see, I was just drawing with my fingernails. So it was sort of a blind contour. And then I would peel the, the paper off and I was always excited by what had been transferred down. And it was as if, as if a different artist was making the work. It wasn't me. I wasn't uptight. I wasn't trying to control it. I wasn't trying to make it look like a whole mind drawing or anything like that. It was, there was something exciting and interesting by letting chance and randomness happen. And, and so I started doing that more where I would, and, and my work now depends almost completely on that of letting random accidents happen and, and reining them in. And it's a Warshak ink blot almost of make some marks and then ask yourself, what do you see there? And, and by removing control from myself, I ended up liking the art that was being made as if it was a different artist. And I was then able to try to become that artist myself and, and have something to shoot for that now I can control, I can control and I can, I can replicate it pretty frequently, but I needed to have that moment of, of playfulness and having fun and, and removing a locked in definition of what the final should look like. And just seeing what would happen and having fun. And if, if something makes me, you know, laugh or I'm excited about it, then then that's something I'm responding to that and I'm I'm excited by it and I should pursue it. So first I'll make a, a brief statement and then ask another question. And you were doing very well at describing you were looking at something that you thought was pleasing, and then you looked at something that was your palette, to use your example, and then you looked at something that wasn't as pleasing, which was the image that you were working on. And you started asking yourself questions. 
and the uh, the part of the brain that switches between left and right brain. So your right brain was saying, "Oh look, this is pretty." Your left brain was saying, "Oh look, I I wonder why. Why what's what's the disconnect between these two things?" I believe that's called the um, corpus callosum. So you were really exercising your corpus callosum. I know that sounds weird, but you were going left, right, left, right, left, right on the sides of your brain because you were analyzing why things were working or not, and you were realizing the the beauty and the artistic qualities when they were. So that is huge. That's amazing that you were doing that at the time. So my question is, please teach me how to do that. And the other question is, how would you define playing in your sketchbook or playing on your image? What, what does that mean to play physically? I think you limit yourself with what you're going to use. So you, you say, I'm only going to use black and white paint, or I'm going to just use this one brush, or I'm going to go out in my yard and pick up a stick and see what, what happens if I use this stick to Oh, I like the stick idea. Um, And so I think that there's so many options now. There's so many things that you could do with art, especially with digital art that you have an infinite range of colors that are easy. You know, it's easy to mix them. You can get it right away. And so there's the risk is removed. And I think that to really play and what I really enjoy about it is that you have to have an element of risk. You have to have an element of failure and it's in the failure that you're going to learn something. It's not the success. And that was a hard thing for me to learn as you're trying, especially when you're, you're learning on the job. So you're working for a client and you're making a painting and, and you mess it up, you fail and something has gone horribly wrong. I, you're, I don't understand my medium or whatever. And, and something is, you know, I, I glaze over a part and the drawing's lost. And the initial reaction is to pick up the painting and throw it across the room and scream and and jump around and how you're go- how are you going to how uh, meet your deadline? And uh, you know it, it, it's easy to look back in hindsight and say, and see now that what I would eventually do is pick it up later. You know, maybe two or three months, I'd I'd think, oh, I wonder whatever happened to that piece that I messed up, and I'd go look at it and say, oh my gosh, that is really cool. That thing that I thought was the worst mistake I've ever made in my life and was the end of my career is actually really interesting and exciting. And I want to do that. I want that to be in my art now. And those, those are the things that I try to, I, I think about it where, you know, there's a, I think it's an engineering term. You probably know this much better than I do of lock-in of, of code being locked in or of something being locked in that. Uh, and I think in terms of definitions, often we have rigid definitions of what something should be. And that makes us unhappy because this is not what I think my, this is not what my definition is telling me it should be. And if, if I ever have a rigid definition of something, I know that I'm fighting, fighting something in art. And so if I'm able to remove my expectation or my definition of what the final piece should be and be open to what's happening and actually see what's happening in front of me, then, then that's where the exciting parts happen, where you're doing something and, uh, you're distracted. So you turn and you knock over water onto the piece and the, the ink blooms everywhere and you freak out and you're, you're blotting at it with paper or whatever you can pick up. And then you, you know, you, you think that it's destroyed and then it dries and you look at it and you see lots of really interesting things happening. So it, I think being able to play 
means being able to put yourself in a place of risk of, of failure and, and knowing that it's okay, that you're only going to find out something. If you already know where you're going and how you're going to get there and everything along the way, then what's the point? What's the point of doing it for me that it needs to have, if you're going to learn, if you're going to grow, if you're going to progress, if you're going to find something new in your art, you're only going to find something new by it being unexpected. It's something that you haven't thought of yet. And that's only going to happen by messing it up by just see, just working it and see it working every day. And, and you can't expect it to happen every day, but you know, every now and then magic will come down and happen on the page in front of you. And, and then you, you try to figure out how to bring that into your, into your work. How often has that happened with you? Because I have talked before that there have been extremely few times in my artistic career. And we've all had these though. When you go to the studio and you start your work and then you stay out of the way and the piece does itself, you know, whatever medium you're working in, you just stay out of the way and you just create this amazing thing. And you think, where did that come from? How can I get in that zone again? What do I need to do to get my brain thinking in that direction? So have you had similar experiences? I have. I, the greatest, the greatest moment of my life was the dumbest realization. I've told you this story before, but the, the, the linchpin of my artistic career right now is the dumbest secret ever, which is as I was, I was working on a painting for a, for Nautilus magazine about Bigfoot and Bigfoot and nothingness. And I was going to do it in oil paint. And I was sitting there waiting for the paint to dry. And I'm, this was again, me not me having a definition of what a final piece should be, which is, Oh, I, I think a final piece should be an oil painting. Um, and not accepting that who I am as a person is that I like to work very quickly. I like to, to get into the studio and work on a piece and then it's done. I don't want to sit around for a week and wait for things to dry in between glazing layers and things like that. But the, the moment, so I, so I decided the, to paint the piece in acrylic and I was just thought I'd try something out and, and I don't even know why I decided to do this, but I started uh, using a brayer and rolling over it with white paint. And I realized as I was rolling the paint that white paint doesn't show up on white paper, which seems so obvious and so, so <laughs> simple. And you know, I love it. Every time you say that, I love it. And, and it has revolutionized that, that, that simple realization has informed my, my work for the last five, five years or so. And, and no, no matter how many times I say it, people still think that I'm doing something different. Social media is full of many joys, but it also has some burdens. And one of the many burdens is everybody in the world asking you how you do something over and over. And no one, a lot of people just don't believe me that I don't mask off any areas and I, you know, white paint doesn't show up on white paper. What, what more do you want from me? Um, <laughs> it's too simple. It's, it is. It's a, it's, it's simple, but it's so, so that was a moment that really, when I, I saw that and I sort of saw my, I saw a, a starting point from there that I could uh, really go after something and, and find a personal voice in my art. And, and I, I think that I've found that I certainly am trying to continue to grow and to change and to, to not, uh, grow stagnant in my art, but that was sort of the, 
the jumping off point to really discovering my voice and pursuing the projects that I want to pursue. Well, in those terms, you are positioned in a very interesting place in the industry because many of the, I won't say competitors, many of your peers in the type of work that you do, do incredibly rendered pieces of art. They, they are ultra photo realistic almost. They are very artistic and they are beautiful. And I have a huge amount of admiration for the people that can do that because of the craftsmanship and the patience and everything else that goes along with the incredible work that they do. But your work is, for lack of a better term, it's the opposite of that. Yours is flat and graphic. It is unrendered. It is usually monochromatic with a spot of color. So you are 180 degrees from people in the same industry. And you're winning awards right and left and publishing books, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really interesting that both of those two types of work can exist together. Have you uh, talked with other people about that? I have. And it's interesting the, the shape that my career, the path of my career has taken and that I don't, when you start out, you just want to make a living at art. You think that that's the, the goal. Wouldn't it be amazing to just be able to, to make enough money to live on by doing this thing that I love? And I did that, and, but I was working in editorial stuff, and, and which was not a good, good fit for me, but I didn't know it at the time, and, and I was miserable. And I could, I could have been working at a bank or at a grocery store or anywhere, and I would have had the same sort of feeling, I think. And, and so then it, it took a – but I, I would have kept doing it because I was too afraid to, to, to go after my dreams, my, my true dreams. And it took a health scare then to say, okay, well, what is it that is personal and, and meaningful? And what would, what's the reason that I wanted to be an artist as a child or growing up? What is it that drives me to, to really be, a, to be an artist? And it was fantasy stuff, you know, growing up in Germany and running around Schloss Frankenstein and my mom reading Frankenstein to me the day after we visited the castle where Mary Shelley was inspired to write it and going to the castle where Ivanhoe was held captive and going to uh, Sherwood Forest and, and all these places. That was the, that was the world that I wanted to enter into with my own art. And so I went into the science fiction and fantasy book cover world and started doing that and was well, very you ha- said, happy uh, doing that. I'm interrupting again because that's what I do. My question is, you said you went into the book cover and science fiction world. Uh, how did you go into it? What does that mean? Before I started getting work in that and before my portfolio reflected that that was the work I wanted, I was still promoting to people like Irene Gallo and, and to the companies that published uh, the, the books, science fiction, fantasy books. But my work didn't reflect it. It was, you know, it was, it was, again, just me saying, I have potential and here, look at this hamburger that I painted. Can't you see that I have the skill to draw a knight on a horse with a dragon flying over it? Um, which an art director, you know, they, it doesn't matter. They want to, they'll only hire you for what you've got. They won't believe that you can paint a horse unless you actually show them a horse or a dragon. So, so I needed my portfolio to reflect 
that stuff. And so then I just started sending, I remember sending a note to Irene saying, hi, Irene, I've realized that my work has not been appropriate that I've been sending you. Here's some work that I'm doing now that I think fits your needs. Um, but it was actually a, an editor in England. It was very, uh, I wasn't able to get much work initially in the States, I think because my work was so different and people are hesitant when something is different. Uh, they need sort of a, something to spur them on. And so I, but the British community was actually very welcoming to me. And I, there was an editor there, Simon Spanton, who saw my work and he commissioned me for six book covers. And so immediately I had uh, a great entry in my first, my first uh, science fiction fantasy work was six covers. So I immediately had uh, a lot of work doing it. And the first, uh, the first one I did for that one of, gold medal from the Society of Illustrators, and that sort of opened the door then. That was sort of the mark of approval that I think the the U.S. market needed that it, my work could have a place here. But I'm still very much a one in 100 book guy. I'm not a blue collar, you know, I can I can be on any book and it'll work. I'm, I think I'm viewed as a, I was, a, there was a recent job that the, the author vetoed me because he thought I was too high end and you wanted something more commercial and I'm, I'm fine with, with, uh, with being thought of that. Was way. that an American market or a European Asian market? I think that that was a British author perhaps, but I, I think what I'm trying to get to thinking back to what I've been talking about is, you know, you have these ideas of what you want your career to be. I just want to make enough money at it. I want to make enough money doing the stuff that I loved as a kid what I really wanted was to tell my own stories to, you know, that you can, there's a lot of people who wait around for, uh, you know, if only Neil Gaiman would hire me to do a book cover of his, I was approached about doing a re-envisioning of, of all of Terry Pratchett's covers, which he wrote 40 something books, which would have been enough to, to buy a house or at least put a down payment on a house out here in California. So I did one and, they had said, you know, we want to bring in a different reader. We want to open it up to a, a different sort of reader base. But then once they got it, they said, oh, actually, we, we want to go with what is safe. We're going to go back to what we were using. And I had enough of these sort of dream jobs dangled in front of me where I'd get very excited about them. And then they would fall through because of it's every, uh, decisions are made by committees now. So you can have someone who's very excited about your work, but then when it gets through the hundred people that it has to go through, enough doubts have been you know, raised that they decide to go with something that feels a little more safe for the market. And I don't want to be safe for the market. And so I had, I had enough of these jobs fall through that I realized that I would be very miserable if I sit around waiting for dream jobs. And I needed to redefine for myself what, my, what I wanted so I would ask myself, well, why would this be a dream job for me? It's like, well, it's a, it's a book that has these fantastical elements. So I was like, well, why don't I just write a book? Maybe it's not, it's not going to be as good as Neil Gaiman, maybe, but, or probably, but if that's a dream job for me, why am I sitting around waiting for someone to hire me for it? Why don't I just try to do it myself? And so that's where I am now in my career is that I actually, I'm not, I'm, I'm very lucky that I have had the success that I've had because it's allowed me to turn down most of the jobs that I'm offered now that it has to be something that is financially viable for me and is exciting to me. So now in my career, illustration is maybe 15% of, of my time and the rest of it is given, it's sort of my day job and the day job that then supports my other work 
which is writing my own books and writing my own graphic novels and, and pursuing my own stories so that I'm not sitting by the phone waiting for someone to, to hire me for a so-called dream job. I'm in, tra- I'm in charge of it and I'm, I'm making my own dream jobs myself. I love that story because anybody that knows me understands that I pursued NASA for years. And I used to ask students, what's your NASA? What is that thing that you want to do that's stuck in your craw and you, you just have to do this, you have to produce it? And I said, you probably, and, and I love what you said, Jeff. Um, yeah, I was sitting by the phone waiting. And then you flipped that on its head. You turned it completely around and said, no, I'm not going to wait. I'm going to do it and I'm going to make sure that it gets done. So that's what I hope a lot of people will take from that part of our conversation is that, yes, do good work, pursue the work, pursue the good jobs that you want to do, and at the same time, figure out what you want to do personally, what you can do that will scratch that itch and pull it all together. Do you try to do artistic things in all aspects of your life? Um, and I could, I could fill in the blanks, but I'll just leave that question open. Yes and no. I think that if I'm going to pursue something, I want to pursue it to the, the best of my ability. So cooking, you know, I love to cook. So I'll uh, try to be uh, as artistic, I suppose, or as good at that as I can be. Um, but I think more that more than trying to be artistic in the things that I do with my life, I try to be aware of how I spend my time. And so I, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. So if you, there's never going to be an empty space for something unless you create it for yourself, especially nowadays that, you know, either your phone or, you know, the infinity pools of, of Instagram or Facebook or whatever, there's always content or something for you to, you can easily lose many hours of your life to every day. Um, so I, I think that I'm more aware of how I spend my time. I wouldn't, I don't know that I would say that I spend it all artistically. I think that because I'm an artist, I probably happen to see things that way often, but I'm open to the universe in that way. But it's more that I, I have a list of things that I allow into my life and I have a very good sense of, of how to spend my time. And other than that, I, I'm very protective of, of not letting other things into that, into that world. How good are you at being present or being in the moment because I find that really hard to do. I try to do it, but I have to be aware of it. I know people that are like that. I mean, they're just like in the moment all the time and I'm jealous of that. What about you? It's something that I've thought about a lot more now that I'm a father, that I want to be present for my, my son, for my children. And so I'm, I'm definitely more aware of that. And I'm very present when I'm making art. And one reason that I'm able to do that is that when I'm actually making a painting, it's rarely longer than a couple of hours. So I, I would say that I, I am good at being present, but probably I'm not someone who's always present. I certainly have to work at it and, and think about it. But it is something that I think about all the time of, of being present and being all that, all that we can. I try to think about things we can control going back to my career, I always think of, I can't control if the phone's going to ring. I can't control if so-and-so is going to hire me. I can't control if I'm going to win this award. 
all I can control is the work that I'm making. That's just what's in front of me right now. And it is the work that is important. It's the work that's going to, to make these other, the, the awards, the money, the everything else is sort of a side effect or a side benefit of doing this thing of being present and making the work as good as I can. So I, I think that you have to be present to really connect with your work and to, to connect with your life, but it's a struggle. It's a very, very much a struggle. And, you know, I think we all have ways of, of fighting it, not having Twitter on our phones or turning off the, the internet router for a certain couple number of hours a day, things like that. That's hard to do these days, but I think it's a good practice. For example, I walked out of a building yesterday and it was, uh, probably 5.30 in the afternoon, in the evening, and the sky was this absolute beautiful pink and blue, and there were just the right amount of fall colors on the ground, this incredible color in the sky, and I thought, wow, that's that's fantastic. And, of course, my um, gallery painter, illustrator kicked in and thought, oh, my gosh, i got to get a 1,000 pictures of this. And then I thought, no, I don't. I can just stand here and I can enjoy it and I can really see it. And it lasted about three minutes. So I thought if I can't sit still (laughs) for three minutes and just sit and enjoy this, then I've got some work to do. So that's what I did. And it was, it was a lot of fun. It was very interesting. And I did take a photograph of it because it was outstanding, but I'm not going to paint it. I'm not going to use it as reference. It was just so remarkable that I just, I wanted to have a, a, a small encapsulation of those three minutes. So I'm, I'm guilty, but I'm working on it. I don't think any of us can be perfect in that respect. And anyone who, who contends that they are is probably lying to us, but I think that we can all, you know, make an effort and, and we're often, you know, I find that if I take those, you know, like you said, those three minutes to just sit and enjoy the sunshine or, or look out my window. And, you know, I live in Northern California now, which is, I look out my window and it's, it's heaven out here. It looks like one of Mark English's landscape paintings outside my window. And uh, just three minutes looking at it makes me feel happy to be alive and is refreshing. And so I think that, you know, we're never, we're never going to achieve perfection, but we can, we can have these little moments in our lives. One more question about uh, going back to the sketchbook. Do you think that working in a sketchbook can lead you somewhere, or do you think you lead your sketchbook? You know, it's like the chicken and the egg thing. If you work in your sketchbook, is that becoming who you are, or is it telling you who you are? That's a great question. I'd probably have to think about it a lot more to to have an understanding of you it. have 30 that, seconds 30 seconds <laughs> i think that it depends on the artist ted and i edward Kinsella and i when we get together and talk about it we always talk about how every artist is different and so i imagine that if you asked ted that question his answer would probably be different than mine i think that mine tells me where to go and who i'm becoming rather than the other way around i think that that mine points the direction for me to go. And I think that's because I'm not trying to control it. I'm, I'm intentionally relinquishing control or, or introducing elements that, that I don't know 
about or know how to use or know how to, to, to work. And often, you know, I have a sketchbook that I don't show. I don't show on social media. I don't show it to other people. And, you know, now my wife is going to ask to see it probably when she listens to this uh, interview. But I think it's important to do things just for yourself and to, to not, to keep the conversation private to yourself and to, to be able to spend time answering questions and, and thinking about it. The, the urge now is to immediately share things that you're doing that you're excited about and get other people to, to tell you that you're right to be excited about it. And I think that if you can have something of your own that's devoted to, to your growth or to your development as an artist that is just a private conversation, that that can be uh, very rewarding and, and a good way to go about it. Well, it's like um, having a diary or having a journal. I don't think anybody would walk into somebody's house and see a diary there or a you know personal journal and pick it up and start paging through it. I, I hope they wouldn't. And I think uh, sketchbooks are the same way. And not only your personal sketchbook that you're talking about, your private sketchbook, I mean any sketchbook. Uh, that's They're all very personal. And there's lots of failures, I hope, in most sketchbooks. There sure are in mine. Uh, there's lots of things that I don't ever want to <laughs> show anybody or for me to even look at again. But I think, you know, that's that's growth. You just try things. You're working out new ideas and it does become very personal. I agree. I think that you have to be invited into someone else's sketchbook to see it. You don't just pick it up and go into it. I try to think, you know, like you were saying that, you know, it needs to have mistakes. It needs to have explorations. It needs to have failures. And when I, when I talk to students now, I try to give that sense to them of loosen up, try to remove this, this weight, this burden that you have on yourself in your sketchbook and just realize that this is just you talking to yourself and just discovering things. And it's not, don't think of it in terms of how other people are going to think about this page. Think about it in terms of what you're trying to, to discover on this page. I think those are good words. Jeff, thank you so much for all this great information and the great stories. I'm really glad you decided to do this with me today. Well, thank you for having me, Brent. It's an honor. <laughs>